Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn of Houston Public Media. And I'm Eric Skelly from Rocco, the River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. And this time we're talking about John Carigliano's The Ghosts of Versailles, which debuted at the uh, Metropolitan Opera in New York in 1991. Yeah, it was supposed to be for the Met centennial year of 1983, but he needed a little longer to finish it. So. <laughs> yeah, they didn't, they didn't get it <laughs> finished. overshot a little bit. The uh, English libretto is by William M. Hoffman, and this, in fact, is, to date, Carigliano's only opera. Indeed, but it was quite a success. At least it was considered so at the time. It's been revived several times. It was supposed to be revived again um, within the last five years or so, and, and financial considerations kept that from happening, but uh, perhaps it'll go ahead in a, in a future season. You talk about cost, and one of the things about this opera is it is large. It is large. And, and I believe they've tried to do a chamber version of it. Or have they done a chamber version of it? I think there were some attempts to reorchestrate it so that it wouldn't be quite so costly. And, you know, smaller companies or regional companies could do it. John Carigliano calls it a grand opera buffa. Mm. And we are taken back to the world of Beaumarchais. Pierre Beaumarchais, the French playwright, who wrote The Barber of Seville and The Marriage of Figaro. And turned into operas, respectively, by Rossini and Mozart, which are, of course, standard repertoire, done all over the world, pretty much every day. Beaumarchais actually had a third play, which became known as the Figaro Trilogy. Right. Called La, La Mère coupable. coupable, The Guilty Mother. <laughs> yes. And that play serves as the basis for much of Carigliano's opera. Yes. Yes, the opera within the opera. Again, we have an opera within an opera. Yeah. When we think of uh, other pieces where that happens, uh, Ariadne auf Naxos by Richard Strauss. Mm -hmm. Pagliacci, you've got a play within an opera. That's correct. So we are in the time of Beaumarchais. We are in pre-revolutionary France. In the court of Louis Sixteenth, or actually the after-court of Louis XVI, as it were. Because they're all dead. Yeah, they are, pretty they're much. They're ghosts. Yeah, exactly. Hence the title. And central to the opera is the figure of Marie Antoinette. Yes. The executed queen of Louis XVI. With whom, according to this opera, Beaumarchais is very much in love. And he wants to sort of try to rewrite history a little bit. Well, he's invested in her happiness. Yeah. He wants her to be happy. He wants to do everything he can to make her happy. And overcome this uh, this, <laughs> this terrible feeling that she's had ever since she was beheaded. <laughs> <laughs> because they didn't have Tylenol back then. No, they did not. They most assuredly did not. There are two acts. As Act One opens, we are in present day in Marie Antoinette's theater at Versailles. And in come all the members of Louis XVI's court to come and see this new opera by Beaumarchais. But these are all ghosts. Right. They are ghosts of the courtiers. And the new opera is by the ghost of Beaumarchais. And he's written this opera to, as you say, cheer up Marie Antoinette. And he has 
composed it as, again, as you said, as the third in his trilogy, starting with The Barber of Seville and then The Marriage of Figaro and now The Guilty Mother. And what has happened is that just as there is that progression from Rossini's The Barber of Seville to The Marriage of Figaro, we have a progression to a situation that that is a development of Marriage of Figaro. Uh, yeah. <laughs> As the opera opens, there is a chase going on, and Figaro is being pursued, and he locks his pursuers in a closet and reflects on his life, much as he does at the beginning of The Barber of Seville, the famous aria, the Lago al Factotum. Indeed. He is... Um... <laughs> Since we last saw him, he's apparently been a busy boy. <laughs> uh, he has a whole list of creditors chasing after him now. Which is why he's being pursued. Indeed. And um, a, a lot of women who believe that he is the father of their children. <laughs> so It's back to Don Giovanni, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> Talk about Figaro la Figaro qua. <laughs> Figaro here, Figaro there. You got it. (laughs) Figaro su, Figaro (laughs) ju. As the the opera within the opera opens, and uh, there is this bouffa scene, this this farce scene, the ghosts, the courtiers, the audience are enthusiastic, but Marie Antoinette is still upset. She's still weeping, and she is still morose because... I guess her head's still hurting. (laughs) Or something. (laughs) But Beaumarchais tells her, and this is central to the opera, that his art can change history and bring her back to life. Right. But he's warned by the courtiers, the ghosts, that he risks losing his soul if he tries to tamper with the past. But Beaumarchais is only interested in the Queen's happiness. Indeed. And Beaumarchais commands the opera to begin again. And we are in Paris in the fall of 1793. Marie Antoinette is in her prison cell awaiting her execution. (laughs) That ought to cheer her up. (laughs) But what then happens is into the opera, we've got Marie Antoinette. Mm -hmm. We have the Count and Countess Almaviva. Mm Mm-hmm. From the marriage of Figaro and the Barber of Seville. Right. They have fled revolution in Spain and have found themselves trapped in France and they're in Paris. Count Almaviva has one of Marie Antoinette's necklaces and he wants to sell it at this diplomatic reception and buy her freedom, buy the Queen's freedom. Right. And we should point out that at this point, the Count and the Countess, formerly known as Rosina in her Barbara Barbara Seville days, uh, they're estranged. They're split. Um, Because, and here becomes the the reason for the title. (laughs) As we saw in The Marriage of Figaro, there was a lot of flirtation going on between her and Cherubino. Yes. Well... It kind of progressed. (laughs) (laughs) It went beyond the flirtation stage. (laughs) They took it to the next level. (laughs) They sure did, and a couple beyond that even. (laughs) So much so that 
they have a child. Yes. Although Cherubino at this point has passed away. But they they had a son named Leon. Leon. Mm -hmm. And as the Countess is having her dalliances with Cherubino, the Count is having his own dalliances. Oh, as he always was, right? Exactly. (laughs) And he has an illegitimate daughter called Floristine. Yes. The problem is... Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Florestine and Leon are in love. Oh, my gosh. And they want to get married. Yeah, that's a problem. It is. <laughs> that's a big problem. And the Count has, of course, nixed it. Completely nixed it. He has promised Florestine to a friend of his, whose name is Begeas. And, yeah, the problem with this guy is that he's the villain. <laughs> I mean, the Count doesn't seem to know that yet, but Figaro and Susanna tried to, to tell him that. You know, this guy is a revolutionary spy. He is no good. He is not your friend. Uh, but the Count doesn't want to hear it, and he fires Figaro summarily. We get this whole backstory from Beaumarchais, who stops the opera so that he can explain what has happened to the Almavivas since the end of The Marriage of Figaro. Yes, thank you, Mr. Exposition. Yes. <laughs> and when he's finished his explanation, he says the opera can continue. And that's when Figaro warns the Count that Bejas is not really his friend and that Bejas has sent his servant, Wilhelm, mm-hmm. to search his room, looking, presumably, for the necklace. Right. The Count refuses to believe Figaro and kicks him out. Yes. The Count leaves, and Bejas and his servant head back. Figaro and Susanna hide, and Bejas comes in, and he, talking to Wilhelm, talks about the plan that he has to get the necklace, sell the necklace, and marry Florestine. Because that's what villains do. They monologue and tell you everything. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Figaro vows he's not going to let that happen. He's going to foil that plot. And in the audience, Marie Antoinette cries again (laughs) because she's very empathetic to the plight of Florestine, Mm -hmm. who will be forced, apparently, to marry Bejas against her will because she wants to marry her (laughs) half-brother. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Wagner. <laughs> yes, yes. That's what Carigliano said. I wasn't the first to put incest nope. in the, on nope. the opera stage. Nope, he wasn't. <laughs> Not even close. Because of Marie Antoinette's tears, Beaumarchais quickly changes the scene, and Rosina, the countess, is begging the count to let Florestine and Leon get married. Bejas agrees with her, ostensibly, which is sort of hypocritical because he's supposed to be marrying Florestine. Right. But the Count is adamant that that he will not let them get married. So this is not cheering Marie Antoinette up at all. (laughs) So Beaumarchais then takes us back further in time, basically, to when Cherubino was still alive. And the setting is this beautiful... This sort of garden setting 
where Cherubino and Rosina are in the full uh, pursuit of their affair. <laughs> Amorous desires. Thank you very much. <laughs> so you have Rosina and Cherubino, and you have Beaumarchais and Marie Antoinette. And they sing a really beautiful, uh, I guess it's a quartet, and it's, it's, it's a really gorgeous piece of music. And we have there the merging of the, of the two stories, Marie Antoinette and Beaumarchais, and then Rosina and Cherubino. That whole melding so that you cannot tell the difference between the opera or the opera within the opera. Right. Because they, they all become one. Right. So they're interrupted by the <laughs> very jealous Louis the Sixteenth who is incensed that Beaumarchais is romancing his wife. <laughs> and he draws a sword and runs Beaumarchais through, which of course has no effect because they're all dead. <laughs> and the ghosts all think this is hilarious. Then the opera resumes, and there is a reception at the Turkish embassy, because you've got to get the Turks in there somewhere. Of course. <laughs> A reception for the English ambassador. And this is, of course, where Almaviva is going to sell the necklace. Leon is flirting with Florestine, and Rosina and Susanna are trying to get the Count to abandon his plan to sell the jewels. All of this taking place as sort of backdrop to this big aria set piece by Zamira, who is this famous Turkish singer, and she does this big performance number. The role was created by Marilyn Horn in the, in the opera's premiere. I believe Patti Lupone did it uh, when the opera was revived recently. And it's just, a, it's just a chance to do a big cameo and make a big effect. Then Bejas and the Revolutionary Guards enter. So he was plotting. He's followed by the English ambassador, and just as the ambassador and the count are about to make their transaction selling the uh, necklace, <laughs> that's when Samira comes out and does her big number. And she has dancing girls with her. Yes. And one of the dancing girls is Figaro. It's Figaro. <laughs> and so it's like Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> In what's the uh, the road to? You, you know, name the, it. The, yeah. <laughs> the road to the, you name it. The road movie. Pretty much any of the road movies. So Figaro is there, dressed up as one of these dancing girls, and he's dancing away, and he suddenly snatches the jewels and jumps out over the balcony. And escapes to freedom. Of course, here we are again, going back to the marriage of Figaro and the balcony and the garden, the jumping out, etc. Yeah. Only instead of Cherubino, it's Figaro this time. Right. Yeah. So Figaro has the necklace and he makes his escape. End of Act One. End of Act One. Act Two begins with Beaumarchais again stating his intention to change history which is what he's trying to do with the opera within the opera. But there is a problem, and that is the curtain rises, presumably for this second act of Beaumarchais' opera, and Figaro refuses to return the necklace, which, of course, means Beaumarchais' opera can't continue. Oops. 
Figaro says that the Queen is not worth saving. What he will do instead is rescue the Almavivas, the Count and Rosina. So here's where that little cautionary bit that you mentioned early on comes in, where Beaumarchais was warned to not get too involved in trying to change history, because it's at this point that he decides that he's going to actually enter the opera. He's going to become a part of the opera, even though you know up to this point they've sort of been crossing and melding, he's actually going to become a character in the opera. He is furious at Figaro's refusal to abide by what he tells him to do. Right. What the opera tells him yeah, to do. Yeah, he's the author. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do what I say. <laughs> and so Beaumarchais forces the curtain to come down. And Marie Antoinette is upset at this, and she tries to leave. Beaumarchais begs her to stay. And what he decides to do is what you've just said. He then insinuates himself into the opera so that he can put it back on track. Mm -hmm. So he's going to force Figaro, or he's going to try to force Figaro, to stick to the plot of his opera. Yeah, good luck with that. (laughs) (laughs) So the opera resumes, and the women, Rosina and Susanna, are assuring the Count that Figaro will return the necklace. The Count leaves with Florestine, and Rosina and Susanna commiserate about their husbands. Have we heard that before? Mm, Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The marriage of Figaro. The letter aria. A duet, rather. Excuse me. Letter duet. When Rosina leaves, Figaro comes in through the window, pursued by Beaumarchais, who tries to frighten him into returning the necklace. And then Marie Antoinette is heard calling for Figaro. (laughs) This is where it gets crazy well (laughs) now (laughs) you think it's just getting crazy now (laughs) crazier Beaumarchais as the author Mm -hmm. uses his powers his authorial powers I guess to transport Figaro and Susanna to the world of Marie Antoinette Louis the 16th etc in other words to the ghost world yeah and what happens what does Marie Antoinette say to Figaro Give the necklace back. She tries to persuade him to return the jewels. Figaro has already said that he doesn't think the queen is worth saving. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, she's in a cell about to have her head chopped off. So he's not very sympathetic. He thinks badly of her. So what Beaumarchais does is tries to show Figaro that Marie Antoinette is innocent. And Mm. he conjures up. Her trial. Her trial, right. And he, Beaumarchais, plays the part of the prosecutor. And as Beaumarchais presents the reenactment of Marie Antoinette's trial, Figaro sees the injustice of what has happened to Marie Antoinette. And he's won over, and he promises to return the necklace. I'll believe it when I see it. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the opera within the opera, Figaro and Susanna hide themselves as Bejas is urging this group of revolutionaries to go in and break up the Count's ball. This is where it all comes together in some respects because you have the aristocracy in the Count and the Countess. You've got the monarchy, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, and this ball is a symbol of everything that the French Revolution 
was a rebellion against. Exactly. The sort of the splendor and the excess of privilege. So Bejas bursts in with the mob and demands the necklace in the name of the revolution. I'm part of the revolution. Give me that necklace. <laughs> God, all for this necklace. I mean, really. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Of course. I think it was the Rheingold or something. <laughs> Ooh, maybe. <laughs> Only now does the Count realize that Bejas is not his friend and that he has betrayed him. Figaro and uh, Beaumarchais arrive and Figaro turns over the necklace. And then Bejas demands Florestine's hand in marriage. Uh-uh, not happening. Because that's what the Count had promised him. When he is refused, he orders that they all be arrested. Figaro says to Beaumarchais, you have the power to get everybody set free. Not anymore. Not anymore. Why he's not? entered the opera. Oh! He's part of the, he's part of the opera now. He's not uh, the author. He's not driving the ship, steering the ship. He's part of the ship. Yeah, he right. is. So Bejas' servant, Wilhelm, leads the prisoners off to prison. But Susanna helps Figaro and Beaumarchais to escape. And Marie Antoinette realizes how much Beaumarchais loves her because he's doing all this in and out of the opera, right in the opera, etc., for her and for her happiness. Meanwhile, <laughs> back at the back prison... At the prison. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, there's a whole coterie of Alma Vivas yeah, in they, the cells. There, there certainly is, and they all reconcile with one another. Figaro with Rosina, uh, you have uh, Florestine and Leon coming back together again, and uh, Beaumarchais and Figaro actually arrive to try to get everybody out. They disguise themselves as executioners, uh -huh. come to uh, put an end to the Alma Vivas. But in reality, to spring them. Right. The women in the cells summon Wilhelm, and they steal his keys. By flirting with him <laughs> and distracting him. Bejas comes in with soldiers, and uh, Figaro has a go at him for keeping the necklace. And the soldiers drag Bejas away. Because He's he did not turn it over to to feed the poor and to serve the purposes of the revolution. He simply kept the necklace for himself. So he's revealed to be the scheming little weasel that he is. <laughs> Figaro then opens all the cells and leads everybody out of the prison to regain their freedom. Beaumarchais then makes to unlock the queen's cell, Marie Antoinette's cell. But... She doesn't want to be released. She does not want to be released. Why not, Eric? Well, she's not really depressed anymore. She's realized that <laughs> Beaumarchais, having done everything that he's done for her, and realizing that he did it out of love for her, it's all allowed her to come to grips with her past, with her fate, and to simply accept it. And so she doesn't want to rewrite history. Because that would mean losing him. Right. She declares his love for him, and she is led away to her execution. They are oblivious at that point to the fact that 
there is a crowd assembled to witness the Queen's execution. And this is a great ending. <laughs> As the, uh, the guillotine comes down and chops off Marie Antoinette's head, the Count and Countess Figaro and Susanna fly off in a hot air balloon to America. To America. <laughs> and Marie Antoinette and Beaumarchais are united in death in paradise. And Beaumarchais puts the necklace around her neck. Yeah. End of opera. Yeah, end of opera. Again, Wagner. It, it keeps reminding me of Wagner. You know, the redemption through love. You know, Tristan and Isolde united through death. Zenta and the Dutchman united through death. Siegfried and Brynhilde united through death. What I love <laughs> about this opera is it is so late 20th century. Yeah. In the sense that it's not, it's not pastiche, but it takes all these operatic conventions and it fuses them into one. Yeah. So, as you say, we have echoes of Wagner. Obviously, we have echoes of Rossini and Mozart. Majorly Mozart. Uh, I mean, it's a, there's a lot of neoclassicism in the opera within the opera. But at the same time, there is that modernity in the opera within the opera. The, the sort of the standard fixed operatic conventions are morphed. Beaumarchais coming in and out of, of the opera. The opera within the opera, which, of course is all a bigger opera. So that's all clear now, right? <laughs> and musically, Eric, you've said there is a lot of neoclassicism here. There is, but there are a lot of different styles. I mean, yeah. he re it's a really an, it's an amalgam of styles, and he layers them on top of one another and, and weaves them in and out from one another, and uh, he uses whatever color he chooses in his palette to bring into the score and it's uh, it's very eclectic and very colorful and largely very accessible and memorable John Carigliano's The Ghosts of Versailles that's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet I'm Sinjin Flynn and I'm Eric Skelly thank you for listening thank you for listening